coverage of last week's political developments. Electoral College Math. This is Jared Ingalls. And this is Caleb Wheat. And this is Ingalls Wheels Wheat 2016. This week, for our first segment, we are going to start by getting into the results of last week's contest, a definitive contest, as many pundits expected it to be in the state of Indiana. As Donald Trump won the state, uh, he won the Republican primary in Indiana, where Ted Cruz had made a major last-ditch effort. He invested everything he possibly could into winning that state, and it is a winner-take-all state, so Donald Trump took its 57 delegates. That, that brings him all. That brings him up to 1,068 delegates. He is in need of less than 200 to get to officially clinch the nomination, which he will for sure receive now because Cruz dropped out that night and John Kasich dropped out the next day. As we said last week, when you and I were talking about it, Jared, we described all pretty much all of Ted Cruz's actions in the lead up to the Indiana primary to be desperate. And that's, you know, it was all desperation. That's everything Ted Cruz was doing. And it did not come through. Donald, we both made our predictions. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I know that Donald Trump's uh, 16-point victory or whatever it was was far more than either you or I expected. He, he had, the, he had the, a solid majority of the votes. I mean, he took the state. And I believe, I would say, that Ted Cruz and John Kasich made the right decision in dropping out. I agree. I think it was, it's very important, however. I especially watched John Kasich's speech the next day. Yeah. And John, because a lot of times what happens in these concession speeches traditionally, like if you go back to 2012 when people were conceding to Mitt Romney, when people were conceding to John McCain on the Republican side, often usually these speeches, these concession speeches end with saying, I wish so-and-so well in the upcoming election. They will have my support. Yeah. Da-da-da-da-da. So that makes sense? It comes with a mm-hmm. very open with an in- endorsement with an whoever that other yeah. person. Right. Usually comes with an endorsement. But uh, this did not happen really with Ted Cruz at all, but it really didn't happen with John Kasich. John Kasich didn't mention Donald Trump once in his concession speech at all. John Kasich focused on what he hoped his campaign would be about, Mm -hmm. uh, what he hoped his campaign had been about, sorry, uh, that he hopes to continue to be uh, be able to do good work for the public in the future. And then John Kasich just uh, left the stage. <clears throat> there was not a mention of Donald Trump. There was no endorsement of Donald Trump. So, And that's something that we've seen throughout this entire week, is as Donald Trump became the presumptive nominee, you've received a lot more blowback, I feel like, than he has received uh, wind behind his back. Um, right. And I find that to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Not from Democrats, from Republicans. Right, exactly. <clears throat> there, has, there, there has been, if at all tepid endorsements of Donald Trump and most of them have been lacking entirely and the most significant of these most definitely came in the day in the day or so following the Indiana primary when speaker Paul Ryan who is now either he or Mitch McConnell depending on who you ask and depending on the current climate I guess you could say in DC has is the most powerful Republican in the country 
and he, he said that he was not prepared to support Donald Trump, and he and Trump will be having a meeting this Thursday, I'm pretty sure in Washington, to discuss unity in the party, to discuss where they go from here. I'm really curious about what's going to happen in this meeting, because I wonder to myself, are they going to be a, you know, I was listening to uh, some pundits and some people commenting on it, and they said that coming out of this meeting, Paul Ryan is going to stand behind Donald Trump and is going to support his candidacy because he has to, is what this one individual kept saying. I think that's optimistic. Yes. I think that is very optimistic of people who actually want to see that kind of unity in the Republican Party because uh, Paul Ryan has consistently shown himself, yes, he's a Tea Party member, but he's also shown himself to be a much more reasonable member of the House than a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the reasons that I kind of admire him, at least in his rhetoric. And yeah. this, I think that for Donald Trump to get Paul Ryan's weight thrown behind him, Donald Trump is going to have to concede part of his agenda to negotiation with Paul Ryan and mm-hmm. to the Republican National Committee before he starts getting people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell behind him, who I think feel stupid standing beside Donald Trump on a stage. Mm. So that's one of the problems. I think that they see it as uh, below them. I think they see it as a blow to their personal dignity that, okay, how the heck did this guy come to be the leader of our party? That's why you haven't seen any of these outbursts of endorsements. Mitch McConnell has still green-lighted candidates to run against the top of a Republican ticket if they have to. John McCain is boycotting the convention, even though John McCain has said that he is, he is happy to support and advise Donald Trump on any foreign policy issues. Lindsey Graham came out and said he will not be voting for Donald Trump and he will not be voting for Hillary Clinton. Both Bushes have said that they will not be supporting Donald Trump for president. So there's a lot of blowback here. And Donald Trump needs to be toning down his angry rhetoric. He needs to be more careful about what he says. And he needs to be reaching out to these guys. Here's one thing I want to point out. Not because I think he really needs them for support on the ground. I think that Trump supporters are going to come out no matter what. The Republicans are going to come out and vote for Donald Trump. Right. What he needs these people for is for fundraising purposes. Exactly. He needs these people to help him raise money like crazy, and he needs these people to also steer the Republican National Committee's war chest behind his presidential nomination mm-hmm. instead of channeling way more of that money into down-ballot races, which is, I think, what Mitch McConnell would prefer to see happen. Exactly, and that's an important point because people, you know, like I said, that one pundit made the argument that Paul, that Ryan has to support, that he has to support Trump. And people would make the same argument, I think. They would say, well, what else is he going to do? But you just touched on the important piece. They have an insane amount of money. They have an insane infrastructure. They have everything that a national committee has in politics. And they have all of these resources behind them. And they can and could choose to not push it behind Trump. Parties do this all the time. Who was it that ran against um who ran against Reagan in his second, in the in in the second race? Um, Barry Goldwater. Was it Goldwater? No, no, no. Oh, I don't man. know. My here's my I've, thing. My understanding. I want to make a confession. The accuracy 
of my understanding of American history kind of plummets at 1945. <laughs> I know like more than the average person, but the accuracy of precision of my analysis starts falling off around that time. Uh, yeah, my 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 accuracy is still pretty good until Gerald Ford, and then it kind of takes yeah, a dip. Yeah, I get to the 60s. Yeah, and then it takes a dip in until like the mid 90s. Um, but yeah, anyway, that I just point that out because, that, because it's an example of, and you know, John Kerry had a little bit of this as well, especially once the race got going in 2004, where your candidate you, really. Oh, wait a minute, Mondale, Mondale, Dale, yeah, I, yeah, Mondale, yeah, I remember that. Um, I don't remember it; I wasn't alive, but I remember reading about that. <laughs> Um, that was a great election. I remember watching the results flow in. It was, it was a great night. St. <laughs> Origin was there making sure all of our souls were being held back to be deployed at the right time. <laughs> I, made a, I made a mention of that little piece of theology in, uh, in my sermon on Sunday. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, um, parties don't have to throw all of their support behind their nominee if they know that they have a nominee that if they're supporting them, they're going to be wasting their resources on. And so if the Republicans are faced with the challenge of either throwing all of their resources behind Donald Trump because they truly believe that he is the best standard bearer for their platform and can secure a victory for them, can maintain their majorities in the Senate and the House, because think about it. If Donald Trump were to win this election and were to bring those majorities with him in the Senate and the House, the Republicans would technically be able to do whatever they wanted, just like the Democrats could when Obama came in in 2009. But the Republicans have every reason to believe that Donald Trump's candidacy is going to hurt their platform and is going to hurt their down-ticket races, and so they may need to decide to invest their resources in those down-ticket races to secure any power and majority that they currently have, which is why Donald, which is why Paul Ryan doesn't have to support Donald Trump. It's why Mitch McConnell doesn't have to support Donald Trump, and it's why Donald Trump needs to start understanding the system that he has gotten himself into. Right, he does, because even this week, I think just to point out why he needs to start understanding it, is he's not pivoted at all to a general election perspective. Mm-hmm. He has been not considering his statements on a day-by-day basis. He tested out attacking Hillary Clinton over her husband's sexual past over the weekend. He tested out claiming that the United States could never go into default on its debt because we print money, which doesn't make sense, I'm just saying. So he's not being careful enough. I don't know if you heard, but mm-hmm. today I think we might start seeing a lot more transition into a general election Trump. He has appointed Chris Christie to oversee the transition phase. Yeah. Um, and so Chris Christie is going to begin uh, molding uh, Trump's platform to a greater degree and carrying out his VP uh, pick, carrying out his, v- uh, what's it called, vetting people for the yeah. VP spot. So he does need to start making that transition. He needs to be reaching out for unity in the party for financial reasons, not because he necessarily agrees with these people, um, but he can't be dismissive. Today, in an interview, he dismissed the need for unity, which makes no sense. And I think it's a good time for a moment. Let's just pause so we give big, big context for our listeners as to why... 
you have to have, especially as a Republican, party unity. Because there are far more Democrats registered in the United States of America than there are Republicans. If Donald Trump had this is these are just numbers for people mm-hmm. so that they understand why party unity is important. Yeah. If every single Republican came out and voted for Donald Trump, that's still not enough for Donald Trump to win the office of president of the United States. He, Republicans also, in order to win elections, have to win independents mm-hmm. and they have to win moderates in order to take an election. They've got to have a big, wide platform. Democrats just need Democrats. Mm -hmm. If Democrats come out in mass to vote, Democrats win elections. Right. The problem is a lot of people in Donald Trump's party don't seem to... Well, I just refer to the Republican Party as Donald Trump's party, which is a phrase that I don't like using, even though it is is, true. It is his party. It is his party now. He is the leader. So I'm going to start referring to the Republican Party that way. Donald Trump's party has to you either unite behind him or his candidate, whose candidacy does flail. That I think mm-hmm. that the whole uh, race goes to Hillary Clinton. And yeah. I don't know how he's going to unify the party. He has made no effort seemingly to want to do that yet. And if he had toned down his really angry and stupid rhetoric at the like earlier in the race, like maybe February or January, we might have time to forget some of the things he said about John McCain being a disgrace, uh, his attacks at the Bush family legacy. But he never stopped that. And now we're in May. I don't think America's memory is that short. And I don't think he has time to repair that image mm-hmm. of himself. And, yeah, and two things on this. One, I want to make sure that I say that, you know, I don't think that he needs to, I don't think that he needs to unite the party because I think that party, that the party system is that important. I mean, I think it's, I've made it very clear for myself, and I'm sure you would agree with me, you know, the two-party system is not essential. The power infrastructure, no, I, Republicans, I, I, I the Democrats, the I mean, I, I hate all of it. I don't think it's essential to American democracy. But if Donald Trump wants to win, he just needs to understand, like everything you just said, when you, when you have the infrastructure of your party behind you, you get certain votes that you wouldn't have otherwise because that's just the way right. our political system currently works. I truly believe we're on the we're on the cusp of that changing to some degree, and I believe that Donald Trump is one of the main reasons for that, but it hasn't completely changed yet. And so he needs to he needs to worry about that. Now, there is some evidence of some unity coming about. So I'm yes, looking at, I'm looking at this article right now that there's a, it's called the Great America Pack. It's a pro-Trump pack, super pack. And since Tuesday, it has done, it has made some moves to uh, bring in some top-level Republican strategists, such as Ed Rollins, who was Reagan's 84 campaign manager and has been involved in Republican politics for years, obviously. They have brought Amy Passan, who is a longtime Gingrich fundraiser, as its finance director. And they've picked up the support of Stanley Hubbard, who is a prolific and wealthy donor to Republican causes. Yes, he is. And he led, he, he was one of the ones who was leading the Our Principles PAC, which was a PAC devoted to defeating Trump in the primary, and now he has put his money behind Trump through this Great America PAC and will continue to do so throughout the process. But even though there's this sign of unity, Trump has to make sure he doesn't ruin it, because like you just said, 
Trump's rhetoric, as we all know, can be pretty aggressive and it can be pretty abrasive. And Donald Trump is being just as abrasive, just as abrasive as he has always been in this in these last several days, almost worse than ever. Today, he went out against Russell Moore for some reason that I don't understand. I have not looked up all the details. <laughs> but, I mean, Russell Moore, who is one... I mean, I'm a Methodist, but I don't have any problem with Baptists. And so even though I disagree theologically with Russell Moore, one of the things you have to understand is that that man is clearly a legitimate disciple of Jesus Christ. And that man is due... I mean, he believes in the Lord. And How he, did you expect Donald Trump to recognize that? That's Donald Trump's a, favorite Bible verse is 2 Corinthians, and, and his favorite Bible verse is uh, eye for an eye. So, however you expected Donald Trump to recognize a true follower of Jesus, I, it's unclear to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would expect him to... I don't, I don't know. Uh, but, you just it doesn't make sense to me. Why would you go... Why would you directly attack Russell Moore? It's a bad idea if you want to bring unity in the Republican Party. It doesn't make any sense. And so he has the infrastructure and these people who want to come around behind him, and he's doing everything he he can to ruin it. Yeah, he is. I mean, there was a few days ago when people thought that he was transitioning into being a more serious candidate because he was being quieter. He was uh, being more gracious in his speeches, not necessarily more substantive. But I don't know. I really don't know. I listened to the interview with Stanley Hubbard today, the billionaire donor uh, that you talked about who switched to Trump's camp. And he seems to have some doubts that party unity will actually affect, affect itself. Even during the interview, he said that. Mm-hmm. He said he thinks it's absolutely essential for people to come together. Otherwise, the person who's going to be president is Hillary Clinton. And his phrase was, Donald Trump is not my first choice. Hillary Clinton is the worst choice. I, quite frankly, don't buy that rhetoric. That is a very mm-hmm. pithy line that uh, sounds completely unintellectual. <laughs> Devoid of any real meaning or thought, basically. Right, um, exactly. So... What are what are we trying to say here? What we're trying to say is that one of the big stories this week that's been unfolding, uh, because it's pretty much unprecedented in our lifetime in, pol- in politics. I mean, there were a lot of people after Hillary lost the election who said they wouldn't vote for Obama, but that number felt way more soft than this number, and party leaders united around Obama very quickly. Uh, the number of people, party leaders, who have come out actively against Trump or who are still silent... Um, is important. This is one other point before we transition to the second part, in which I think we'll just uh, become much more specific about the direction of the general election. Yeah. Um, But even if people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and John McCain and Mitt Romney come out and say that they will vote for Donald Trump, that they are going to support him. Right. There's a big financial difference, and there's a big motivating people difference between saying you're going to vote for and support and actually actively endorsing and advocating for them mm-hmm. across the country. And I don't see Mitt Romney actively advocating on the behalf of Donald Trump to the rest of the country. And Hillary right. Clinton, think about President Bush had a less than 30% approval rating when he left office. So, of course, he was toxic. Nobody wanted President Bush traveling around endorsing them. 
Obama is likely going to leave office with a more than 50% approval rating. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good job for a sitting president of eight years. So President Obama is going to be on the campaign trail with Hillary, strengthening the coalition that she's already building. She has Elizabeth Warren. I'm sure Bernie Sanders will do what he can to stop Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump from becoming president. She has a far larger arsenal of people who advocate for her across the country. Congresswomen and senators from each state who stump with her across America. Uh, two former presidents who will endorse her and stump with her across the, across the United States. So, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of the bandwagon that will be traveling around with Donald Trump because it's hard to yeah. win a general election if it's just you out there doing events for you. You usually have to have lots of surrogates out there holding rallies for your campaign, even if you yourself cannot be physically present. Yeah. Well, I completely resolve that. And let's use that as the nice transition. We'll end this first segment. Stick with us. In the second segment, we're going to do my favorite part of presidential politics, and that is some electoral college math. Stick with us. Stick with us. And in this second segment, we turn our eyes to the general election to talk about what are the chances that Donald Trump could become the president? How is Hillary Clinton going to be able to make inroads that no other candidate has been able to make so for a long time into the American South as a Democrat? This is going to be an election that I think is going to put a lot of weird states that normally are not considered toss-up states are going to become toss-up states, and there are a lot of states that typically are toss-up states that are actually going to become more solid states for some candidates. Um, in fact, or, put a better way, maybe there are going to be more toss-up states than there have been for a long time because of Donald Trump's claim that he can take a lot of northern states that Republicans haven't carried for years, and a lot of um, <clears throat> uh, speculation that Hillary Clinton can take states like South Carolina, Georgia, um, and maybe even places like West Virginia and Kentucky away from the Republicans, states that they have not lost in many, many years. So to go ahead and start talking about what the toss-up states are and where the candidates are stronger or weaker or what they say they can do, um, I'm going to turn it over to Caleb. So Caleb, what are the usual toss-up states? Okay. The usual toss-up states, if I'm if I were to give a list of the, the states that when you look on a map, are usually in the lead-up to the election gray because we don't know exactly how they're going to go. It is Nevada, Colorado, Iowa, Ohio, Florida, New Hampshire, Virginia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. This year, there are a couple more that people are kind of arguing as toss-up. Um, we got people, some of who are saying who are pointing out that Wisconsin is a toss-up, which has been a recent development. Um, Trump thinks that Michigan is a toss-up. Um, and in the in past elections, you also had um, Missouri and Indiana as toss-ups. So there's a good chance that we'll see those as pretty close this year as well. And, yeah, so that's about all of them. But um, that number accounts for a lot of votes, a lot of electoral college votes, because that's the policy, just a quick intro to how this system works, is that we have to remember our president is not elected by popular vote. 
Our president is elected by electoral college votes. So technically, when you go to the polls to vote, you are voting for electoral... It's similar, it's similar to the primary process. Well, no, I shouldn't say it that way because that's actually not the case at all. Technically, the voters in the electoral college who are selected after the election is done can vote for whoever they want, technically. Um, but people are selected to cast the votes based upon how the state goes. And in every state except for Nebraska and Maine, who a lot theirs proportionally, every, the electoral votes of every state can go in full to whoever won the popular vote of that state. It is rare. It has only happened a couple times, one of them being 2000 with George W. Bush, that someone who did not win the popular vote won the presidency because of the electoral yeah. college votes. Um, and so when you when we talk about the electoral college, you need 270 votes to win because 270 votes is the 50% plus one, right? And uh, there is technically the opportunity of a tie. The electoral college can tie because it has, um, oh gosh, doing math in my head, 269 times two. What is it, Jared? Jared? <laughs> <laughs> it's sending it five, to the English PhD. 500 and, <laughs> 538. They have 538 voters in the Electoral College, so you can technically tie with 269 apiece, and if that were to happen, then the newly elected, if I'm remembering correctly, the newly elected House of Representatives would vote for the president and whoever that would be. So all of that is just a little brief introduction. So when we say toss-up states, those are, when I say that they account for a lot of votes, I don't necessarily mean number of voters, I mean the number of electoral college votes, which is technically based on population because it's, it's the same number of people that your state has in Congress, as in your two senators plus however many people you have in the House of Representatives, so you'll have at least three electoral votes, and that's, that's your number. Right, exactly. <clears throat> so what's happening is with a lot of these states that are toss-up states, oftentimes, let's go ahead and get uh, some of the, uh, what am I trying to say? Some of the myths out of the bag. Mm -hmm. uh, for years and years, Republicans continue to treat the state of Pennsylvania as if it's an actual toss-up. As Caleb and I have said on multiple occasions, we really don't think Pennsylvania should qualify any longer as a toss-up state. Very rarely do Republicans carry it. I don't know how they're supposed to. With Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, uh, there are a lot of labor unions in the state of Pennsylvania. There are a lot of urban voters. There are a lot of African-American voters. It's a fairly diverse state. And Caleb pointed out that the one way the Republicans think that they can win Pennsylvania is usually on the issue of guns, in which the whole state of Pennsylvania seems to align behind uh, the NRA, basically, on the on gun policy. It's very independently, very in, uh, gun ownership friendly state. Uh, the real important toss-up state that I wanted to point out to everyone is Ohio. Republicans cannot win without Ohio is the mantra that everyone says every four years. Can the Republicans win without Ohio? Well, no, they can't <laughs> for some reason. Uh, whichever party Ohio falls to, it, Ohio is at this point considered a hyper-bellwether state, <laughs> ends up picking the president. And that's because Ohio is a very good demographic and economic 
rep- demographic. It's a demographically and economically representative state for the rest of the country. There are a similar number of rural and urban voters as there are in other states. It's just a pretty good average of the rest of the United States. So every everyone spends more money and more time in Ohio than any of the other states, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the map going in forward. So. What are some of the states that Trump thinks that he can actually put into play that haven't been in play for a while? Well, you pointed out Michigan, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, he also claims and has claimed multiple times this week that he's going to put the state of New York into play. I hope he thinks he can do that (laughs) because if he really thinks he can make the state of New York contestable, he's going to – if he he spends any time here or money – that will be a boon for Clinton because she's not going to lose the state of New York. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. It's a myth that he's telling himself, I think, because he wants to say that he wanted, he wants to win his home state. And maybe he's still kind of drunk after winning every single county of New York in the primary. And thinks that that is then representative of the state of New York and has forgotten that that is only representative of a closed primary of Republicans in the state of New York comprised roughly only a quarter of the electorate of the state. So um, those are places that he thinks he uh, can win. Uh, that being said, what do you see, Caleb, as being – because I have my idea of what uh, Donald Trump's path to the White House looks like. Where do you think he wins? How does um, – what states does he absolutely need to the White House? Where do you threaten Hillary? Well – as I'm looking at it, you know, as you were just talking, I kind of took out, I cleared out and made toss-ups every state that you and I have previously discussed that may be in play that would not normally be in play. Either way. So I took Michigan and New York out of Hillary's column, and I took Georgia and South Carolina and Missouri out of Trump's column. And so I'm looking at a map that has Nevada, Colorado, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, New Hampshire, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida up for grabs. Does that make sense? Yes. And that puts Hillary with 172 delegates, or 172 votes. That's going to be hard to get out of the delegate conversation now. And Donald Trump with 156 Electoral College votes. Need to get to 270. The difficulty for both candidates when you have, if the map were to be this wide open... Like you were just talking about with New York, the difficulty with a map that is this wide open is you have to spend money in a lot of places. And any of the urban major population centers in these states are going to be expensive. Okay? So, but I'm going to do, I don't see, you know, for Trump to win, you know, I'm going to give him back Georgia. I'm going to give him back South Carolina. I'm going to give him back Missouri. Um, I'm going to give him Colorado. Because um, there are some voters who I would say lean just more populist, not necessarily liberal, and so may end up going into Trump's column. That's where you may find, I think, some of the voters who right now are passionately in favor of Bernie, who may go to Trump just for the populist tendencies. Um, As you said, and I agree with, I don't think there's any possible way that Hillary loses New York. I don't think there's any possible way that Hillary loses Michigan. I don't think that there's any possible way that Hillary loses Wisconsin, okay? So I've now got the map down to the remaining toss-up states being Nevada, Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida, with Hillary at 227 votes and Donald Trump at 200. As you just said about Pennsylvania, and I completely agree with, 
I don't think there's any way the Republicans are going to win Pennsylvania this year. So we give those to Hillary, and Hillary's getting awfully close now, okay? She's now at 247 electoral votes votes to Donald Trump's 200, and there are a number of states left on the board. Yeah. yeah, and I want to put a pause really quick. But one of the things, based on where you have the electoral map right now, shows Donald Trump doing something that is really dangerous for a campaign. He's having to play a lot of defense. Uh-huh. He's having to play the entire southeast seaboard defense, yes. which is all necessary Republican territory. But proceed. Yes. So let's look at – let me just kind of talk through these states very quickly one by one. So we start with Nevada, and when you look at the most recent poll in Nevada, was taken in July by PPP, which you and I and I both talked about as being one of the more accurate accurate polling places uh, of all the ones in the nation, right? And but they we're talking the last, ten months ago, right? Ten months ago, July. Oh yeah, yeah, like long oh, time boy. ago, July. And that one had Clinton with 48% to Donald Trump's 42%, and so thereby leaving 10% up for grabs, right? Um, With a margin of error of 3.7%. If I'm looking at Nevada and if I'm thinking about Donald Trump's chances, I just, I think my instincts tell me Hillary Clinton's taking that one. You know what I mean? The other reason I think that Hillary Clinton takes Nevada is because I think that she is going to consolidate the Latino vote and build on that coalition that Obama started to form a few years ago. Obama Mm -hmm. won a coalition of women, Hispanics, African Americans, and uh, independents and moderates. The coalition of those five things, Hillary is actually in the most recent polling doing better than Obama did in both of his election matchups against McCain or Romney. She's doing just a couple points better in every single mm-hmm. one of those categories. And so I think that that is a pretty good shoe-in and a sign yeah. that Donald Trump, I mean, that Hillary will take Nevada. Yeah. Now, if I had to guess. Yes. And now at this stage, it's, become, it's becoming even more difficult for Trump to pull this off. Because when I did that and put Nevada in Hillary's column, that brought her to 250-53 electoral votes, and Donald Trump is still at 200. So Iowa, here's the thing. Iowa is a big state for Trump. If it's going to be a toss-up, it's one that Trump should go for because it's cheap to win Iowa. Okay, It doesn't cost as much to win an ad buy in Iowa as it does in other places. And if you're strategic with Iowa, if, if he's going to have a contest in Missouri, or if he's, or if he may be able to put Wisconsin in play, if he's smart, he can use ad buys in Iowa, buying ad airtime in, on the radio and on TV in Iowa to creep into the territory of both Missouri and Wisconsin. Um, and just to also emphasize how dangerous of a place that Donald Trump is in at that point on the map, all even if Hillary lost every single other of the toss-up states that are left on the board, except for Ohio, she wins. If she lost every single other state, including Ohio, but takes Florida, she wins. So all she needs is Ohio or Florida at that point. Right, and, that, and that's what I was just about to say. So if we give Donald Trump Iowa... If you know if he really fights for it and takes Iowa, then he has left with with he him only having two hundred and six electoral votes. He has New Hampshire, Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida left. For him to win, as you just said, he must win Ohio. Ohio. He must win Florida. I would argue he must win New Hampshire, and then. 
with Hillary Clinton having 253 delegates or electoral votes and Donald Trump having 257, Donald Trump is faced with the decision. He has to decide whether Virginia or North Carolina, and remember, he's to win Ohio and Florida. New Hampshire doesn't cost as much, it'll, but it would be a very hard sell for him to win there, so I'm just giving that just so we have this scenario. For He's spending a lot of money in Ohio, and he's spending a lot of money in Florida to pull off those victory points, right? And right. so Donald Trump has to decide in Virginia and North Carolina, both of which have expensive markets, okay, which of these is, he's, is he willing to sacrifice? Because he can, whichever one he wins puts him at 270. And whichever one, but he can lose one. Because if Hillary wins right. Virginia, that would put her at 266 delegates. If she won North Carolina, that would put her at 268 delegates. So Donald Trump's right. campaign would then have to decide, do we do Virginia or do we do North Carolina? And you can't, in my opinion, you cannot just play it safe and try to win both. You don't have the money, you don't have the resources to pull that off, that off even though they're right next to each other. You've got to go all in on one of those states. Yeah, and I agree. So what we've just demonstrated is how kind of the, the path, I think, is there for Donald Trump. I think there are states that he brings into play. I think he, if he wins, he wins in the Rust Belt. These old industrial, disaffected workers, and he wins on what issue? He wins on the issue of trade, mm-hmm. on, uh, on arguing that the Clintons are bad for American manufacturing workers and being able to pull over states like Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and maybe Pennsylvania over to his side. That corridor is where Hillary Clinton is at her weakest if he can make the election about trade. And on every issue right now, whether it's commander-in-chief, whether it's social issues, whether it's being able to work with Congress, leadership, Hillary Clinton leads in every single category except for one. Who would be better for the economy? Donald Trump wins that by five points. And I think that that's a dangerous category for her to be losing in. Um, That being said, let's flip this around. I have a couple interesting ideas. One that the news is not talking about yet, but that I actually kind of fear, and that this would be a massive upset in the general election. So the news is talking about the possibility right now of Hillary Clinton actually being able to take Georgia and North Carolina, both of them. Um, and Georgia, the reason they say this is there are so many, uh, and in South Carolina, they've also talked about that as well, especially with Lindsey Graham's anti-endorsement of Trump, um, and that because that's his home state. If enough Republican voters stay home and African-American voters come out in high and strong numbers because of the lack of enthusiasm for the Republican candidate, it is very feasible that Hillary Clinton will be able to do a route of the entire American eastern seaboard from Maine to Florida, which would be a huge victory for her. If she could take North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, and Florida, what is traditionally considered Republican territory, that would end his bid for the White House entirely if he can do that. Yeah, and I would I would argue, you know, I gave that scenario a minute ago to try and paint, you know, how he could win, but I don't see any way he went for it. And just doing what you just did, that puts Hillary Clinton's electoral college victory at 339 to 199. I mean, that is a massive, massive win. Right. And now here's the state that a lot of people aren't talking about. And this is a state 
that has been trending more and more Democratic every single election. It is the fortress of a Republican electoral victory, and that is Texas. Texas, I think, could come into play for three reasons. Number one, the populations of Austin and Houston continue to trend upward. They continue to elect very liberal mayors. Um, well, not liberals, but Democratic mayors. The right. state is becoming more balanced. It's not as conservative as it was even four years ago. On the state level, and like Texas as a whole still prides itself on being a conservative stronghold, but looking at the numbers, that's not true. In the last election, it was only by a four- or five-point margin that Texas did not go to the Democratic candidate. Who lives in Texas, and who do the Texans admire? The Bushes. The Bushes are adored by Texans. And the Bushes have not only said that they will not be supporting Donald Trump, an anti-endorsement, which could definitely dampen Texas Democrats, I mean Texas Republicans, more than Republicans in a lot of the rest of the country, because Texans feel a lot more loyal to the Bush family. But it was the, the other thing that might put Texas in play is just how nasty Donald Trump has been about the Bushes. Donald Trump has been trashing the legacy of George W. Bush. He's been trashing Jeb. He's been trashing George H.W., which may work for independents and which also may work for Republicans and a lot of the rest of the country. But it doesn't seem to play as well in Texas. So if you have Texas Democrats like believing that for the first time in a very long time that they can turn the state of Texas for Hillary, so the Democrats are being energized enough to come out and vote for her, and they're being obviously what I'm predicting to be a fairly tepid sense of support for Donald Trump in Texas. Because the other thing that's great about Texas, one of the reasons that I, I like the people of Texas is generally they tend Texans tend to be very educated Republicans. Right. It's one of the uh, or the, it's a generally quite well educated state, especially for the South. Right. I'm not saying anything bad about the South. Let me clarify that. I love the American South, but we all the American South states for some reason we all we got we kind of struggle when it comes to high school completion and college completion. So, but Texas does not. Okay, <laughs> Texas is one of these Republican states that also manages to be highly educated. Um, very. Not strange, but unique combo. So I, I, I see Republicans in Texas having a harder time legitimizing, working their way to a rational legitimization of their vote for Donald Trump. Mm. I see a lot of people third-party voting or just staying home. And I think that Texas is actually going to be an in-place state for this time because the Clintons are still a Southern family. They really are. They're, they're, they are... Arkansas natives served Arkansas for eight years, and I think that she could put Texas into play. And I think we're going to see that as we roll closer to the general election, unless uh, there's a VP candidate that really gets the entire GOP fired up. For example, if Donald Trump picks someone stupid like Sarah Palin, uh, which has been <laughs> talked about, or if he picks Ben Carson, I don't think or Ted Cruz, I do not think that Donald Trump is going to energize the party as is necessary no. to take Texas, which he should be able to do fairly handily. And I think Texas, by darn it, becomes a toss-up state. That would be, it would be horrible for a Republican to have to spend a bunch of money to keep Texas in their box. You just, in, you just introduced a very interesting idea. Huh. Well, this is going to be fun. Like I said, I enjoy the electoral math part. 
Um, if I had my way, I'd probably get rid of the Electoral College system, but I enjoy playing with it well while it exists. <laughs> um, right, but, I agree with you. It's fun. When, I yeah. get, when you get to click around on the screen to determine the fate of America. Yeah, it's so simple, so much power with such a click, you know? Anyway. <laughs> but this will be fun, and uh, we'll, of course, over the next several weeks, continue talking about the primaries as, as they play out on the Democratic side, and we will talk about the, any developments that are coming with you know this meeting with Trump and Paul Ryan, how the Republican Party is coming together behind him, what it looks like the convention is shaping up to be like, and we'll continue to look at, as, as people take more and more polls, of these states for the general election, we'll be able to get a clearer picture of what states are, in fact, in play. Do you have any final thoughts for us this evening, Jared? I do not. Uh, even if I, I want to say one last thing, though, actually, sorry. Uh, I do not, but I do. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I do not, but except for one thing. Um, the, even if the popular vote ends up being close, which I actually think that the popular vote is going to make the election look closer by a long shot than the Electoral College is going to make it look. Mm. I think that Donald Trump could hold a... I think it's going to... I think Hillary's going to win, but only by three points nationwide, probably. Like mm -hmm. a 52, 48, or even a 51, 49 victory. But I think that Trump's just going to have a lot of voters in mass in states like Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Kansas... Uh, Louisiana, I think all these states are going to come out voting really heavily right. for Donald Trump. But I think that Hillary is going to have a marginal victory, and I think this could be one of the largest Electoral College blowouts that we've seen since mm. Ronald Reagan. I easily, on my map right now, even giving Donald Trump some of the toss-up states that we've talked about, Hillary hitting 400 Electoral College votes, So, um, which would be astounding if she went in with that kind of a mandate. Oh, I think I don't think that that is out of the realm of possibility at all. So yeah, this is going to be fun to watch. Well, as always, everyone, we thank you for listening. We hope that you have enjoyed the show, and if you have, we hope that you will go and leave us a review on iTunes and share this podcast with anyone else who you think might enjoy it. I, our show is produced, as always, by Gwendolyn Wheat, and it is hosted on SoundCloud. And we are just so appreciative that you join with us each and every week as we talk about this stuff that we're both very interested in and enjoy a lot, but neither of us get paid to do. So thanks a lot. And as always, this is Caleb Wheat. And this is Jared Ingalls, and this is Ingalls Wheat 2016. <laughs>